it's Charlie O'Shields back with another episode of Sketching Stuff. Looking back on my own art journey, there have been so many twists and turns along the way. Sometimes I thought I would head in one direction and ended up taking an entirely different path. But one thing has always remained the same, and that's my love of art and stories. Indeed, it's always been my hope to write and illustrate my own storybook someday. This goal has always been in the back of my mind from the start, and so no matter what crazy path I take or things I try, I'm always working toward that goal. So every little thing I create each day is just another page in my own story and a way to progress toward my goal, one little sketch at a time. This diligence has gotten me closer and closer to my goal, and there are some days when I do something with a sketch that sort of surprises me. Sometimes it's adding something entirely from memory. This isn't something I could have done when I first started sketching. I didn't have the visual library in my head. To get that, it's taken lots of practice, and there are still many things that I simply can't sketch without a reference. But little by little, I'm learning how to put my imagination on paper, and that's a wonderful thing indeed. And though the process can seem slow sometimes, it's worth the time it takes. An art journey is less of a short fable and more of an epic tale of adventure. So I just take one page at a time as I tell my watercolor stories. Welcome to Sketching Stuff, a collection of stories sketched from life. Riding on a Broom While I think I've mentioned several times in my posts that I've always wanted the ability to fly, I hadn't ever seriously considered the idea of a broomstick for travel. Though certainly a flying machine made for witches during Halloween month, they're also used by the characters in Harry Potter to play a game of Quidditch. This is a fictional sport, which is really the only kind I could ever imagine myself being good at. But the whole broomstick ride doesn't seem like a particularly comfortable way to travel. It's just a stick, really, with a bit of straw at the end. Though my butt is not particularly large, it's still a fair bit bigger than a stick. So, true to form, I got a bit lost for a moment in a rabbit trail of online videos of people flying on a broom. These were all from movies, of course, as any other form of this sort of travel has apparently not yet been caught on video. As far as I could make out from my brief research, the broom seemed like merely a prop. Take it away, and it felt like the person could still somehow be magically flying. But I guess it's a good thing, as a squatting stance while flying would look perfectly ridiculous without something there to justify it. My flying dreams are ludicrous as an adult since I have a fear of heights, but those fears are only experienced when being on the roof of a very tall building. It's really the fear of falling off since I don't actually possess the ability to fly. Were I able to soar through the clouds on my own, perhaps those fears wouldn't be there at all. It strikes me that this is very similar to any fear I might have of failure. If I'm not certain I can do something properly, there's always a chance that I might mess things up. This is likely why I've never enjoyed sports, Quidditch aside, of course. For example, I don't have a fear of walking because I'm rather practiced at doing so and only very occasionally find myself doing it wrong. This happened much more in my youth where my happy hours weren't reserved for painting. But as I'm painting each day, I'm wondering whether or not the result will be something remotely interesting to anyone. Will I soar or will I fall? 
If my painting fails to intrigue or interest people, they're far less likely to even read the ramble that's happening next. And yet, I totally enjoy the devil-may-care attitude that comes with social media and daily sharing. The Daily Stuff is not a gallery show where you obsess over every little piece you've made recently and worry whether or not you're selecting the best ones. It's a flick of the mouse or a touch of the phone excitedly sharing whatever just happened because it's simply time to post and, well, that's just what came out. This to me is freeing. It's a world where the only real failure comes from failing to show up at all. And as artists, daily practice is the absolute key to improving our skills and turning our flying dreams into a reality. Each time we sketch or paint something, we learn so much about light, shadow, and our own visual perceptions. Each time we post something, we learn a bit about the visual perceptions of others. This is the sheer thrill and joy that keeps me coming back each and every day, a feat that, when combined with a busy life, can often feel impossible. Yet finding a way to actually do so makes me feel like I'm doing the impossible and finally getting that mind-boggling experience of riding on a broom. One Precious Cookie when I was at lunch with two of my coworkers once, one had ordered a cookie which came out on its very own little metal tray. It was such a fun presentation, I immediately started to marvel at it and then nearly screamed, don't eat that yet, it's my prompt for today. Thankfully, this was a member of my own creative team, so he immediately understood my crazy outburst and the other helped me find the right light. It's definitely wonderful and indeed comforting to spend the day with fellow creative folk. And this quick little doodle wash is output of that incident and an homage to that wonderful little chocolate chip cookie shrine. As a kid, these were stacked high on a plate, but as an adult, apparently cookies arrived as just a single precious treat. A trophy of sorts, befitting the most popular homemade cookie of all time, and a fun reminder of those fresh baked cookies I had as a child. I didn't actually order one of these cookies today, but there's always tomorrow. And even without sampling it, this one little cookie made me pause and smile. Though chocolate chip is certainly the favorite cookie of most, my personal favorite cookie as a kid was the amazing Snickerdoodle. This was my most requested cookie and one I'm sure my mother grew rather tired of baking. I still remember the taste of them as they were still warm, having just come out of the oven, and the surprisingly different taste of them after they had cooled. I think that's why I love them so much. It was like getting two different cookies and I loved them both the most. When Philippe and I first met, I told him about my craving for snickerdoodles. He had no idea what this type of cookie even was before meeting me. He said he would make them for me, but that was about eight years ago now and I'm still waiting. This fact just occurred to me, so since he's sitting right next to me, I've taken a brief opportunity to remind him. He just shrugged and said, okay, which I know means I'll have to resort to begging at some point. I just double checked if he'd actually heard of them previously and his response was, well, no, it's not refined enough. Ugh, the sugar is refined, what more do you need? In many cases, Philippe can transform one of my childhood treats into something new, but in the case of Snickerdoodles, there's truly not much improvisation to be had there, so perhaps that's part of the delay. 
But now that I'm writing this, my new goal this fall will be to get him to finally bake some. I'm curious to try them again and even more curious to see him make them. Though only the sugar was refined in my childhood, I still have fond memories of it. I didn't grow up with culinary bakeries around every corner. I grew up with a single neighborhood donut shop. Though we're both creative people, there are still so many wonderful differences between us to keep life interesting. And it strikes me now that those people and things we fall in love with are pleasing for all the uncommon bits and not actually the similarities at all. But in all of those differences, there's something that connects us. A tiny and sometimes silly thing that makes two worlds collide in the sweetest of ways, like one precious cookie. The Twisted Tale of Little Snow White For a prompt of Apple once, my mind leapt to the famous story of Snow White. Disney, of course, has the most popular version of the tale, but you gotta love the morbid creativity of the early version by the Brothers Grimm. For those not aware of the differences, here's a quick little recap of the original story. First, Snow White's mom dies immediately after giving birth to her. The king mourns briefly, but remarries another woman the next year, who happens to have a magic talking mirror that tells her daily she's the prettiest. My mirror just tells me I look older each day. Alas, everything changes when Snow White reaches seven years old. The mirror declares Snow White the next popular girl in town, and the queen orders a huntsman to kill Snow White and bring back her lungs and liver as proof. One should think either organ would have sufficed. But he doesn't actually kill her and guts a wild boar instead. The cook boils the organs, with salt, we are assured, and the queen gleefully eats them, thinking she's eating Snow White. And meanwhile, back in the woods, the spared little girl gets hungry and breaks into a house. Later, she's caught by the owners, who turn out to be seven dwarves. They tell her she can stay if she becomes their unpaid domestic slave, and she foolishly accepts. The better-known Disney version omits the Queen's cannibalistic nature, but there's still more craziness they neglected to include. As it turns out, Snow White isn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. In the Disney version, she's simply fooled by an old lady with an apple, but in the original version, she's quite easily tricked two times before that. First, the Queen disguised herself as an old woman selling bodice lace and tries to suffocate Snow White by trussing her up too tight. The dwarves find her lying on the ground, unlace her a bit, and she's fully restored. Then they tell her not to open the door for anyone when they're gone, worrying she might just be an idiot. She apparently doesn't speak dwarf as she opens the door for a different old woman the very next day. This one is selling combs, but yep, they're poisonous. The old lady combs Snow White's hair and she quickly passes out and the dwarves find her once again. They just take the comb out and she's totally fine. Feebly, they warn her to stop letting old ladies in the house, but well, she's Snow White, so they pretty much know what to expect by now. Sure enough, the next day, the old lady comes with an apple. Though she initially declines, the lady performs a taste test to prove it's not poisonous. It's actually an apple that's half white, which should have been enough to arouse Miss White's suspicion, but she's just not the suspicious type. The old lady takes a bite out of the white half and offers the used apple to Snow White. There's an old saying that comes from an Italian proverb modernized as, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. 
There's not a phrase for the third time one gets fooled as it's never supposed to happen in the first place. This time, the dwarfs return to find her simply dead. So they cram her in a glass coffin, set her out in the woods, and no doubt put out an ad for a new housekeeper. Years later, she's mysteriously not decayed and instead grown older. A prince happens by and he immediately falls in love with the dead girl and offers to buy her from the dwarves, saying he can't live without her. The dwarves refuse to sell, but take pity on the creepy prince and decide to just give him the corpse instead. The prince's clumsy servants try to carry the coffin away, but stumble, jiggling her just right so as to create a Heimlich maneuver that makes her spit out the nasty apple chunk that was apparently just lodged in her throat. She bursts back to life once again, perfectly unfazed as we all know by now, she's just really special. A wedding happens immediately after and her stepmom shows up to the ceremony. Since she obviously wasn't on the guest list, she is instead made to dance about in iron shoes that had been placed in hot coals until she dies. And the story ends abruptly there, leaving us all grasping for the point and yet still curiously wondering if Netflix will greenlight a second season. So now you know the twisted tale of Little Snow White. The Allure of Shiny Things For a prompt of fish once, I ended up with a little silver spiny fin, a fish I would place in the ugly cute category, much like E.T. the extraterrestrial. And there's certainly a lot of aliens waiting to be found in the ocean depths. I'd not really heard of this fish before, but saw an article recently that said that this big-eyed deep-sea fish has a greater diversity of rod photopigments than all other vertebrates. What that geeky bit of trivia actually means is that despite its home in the deepest, darkest bit of the sea, it can not only see better in the dark, but just might be able to see color in the dark. In particular, to better see what researchers speculate is their favorite dinner, consisting of a delicious little shiny shrimp that emits bioluminescent light. What I find truly intriguing is that the deep sea is actually the largest habitat on Earth, but the one we've studied the least because it's rather difficult to access. And it's equally comforting to know that this little fish isn't very likely to encounter many fishing lures in the safety of the deep sea. Were that to actually happen, of course, he might just get distracted by his own reflection and miss the real danger entirely. For my own part, I don't share the amazing vision of the silver spiny fin and can barely see in the dark. But like this little fish, I do really enjoy shiny things. After sketching this, I honestly had no clue what the message was meant to be. It could be anything from a message on man's constant invasion into the natural world to a metaphor for the dangers of vanity. Or it could just be a weird fish encountering a lure. However you personally interpret it, you would be correct. What I do know is that I'm having a blast truly trying things that are a bit outside my comfort zone. This sketch was created by using 10 different reference images and then creating my own composition from what I'd visually learned. This is the type of approach I'd always wanted to take, but the fear of not being able to do it has always stopped me. So I finally took the bait and I have to say, I'm totally hooked. 
Equally tonight, I felt a bit smart because I questioned the way I originally wrote my bit of trivia about the spiny fish in the beginning of this post. So I had my PhD scientist husband, Philippe, help me fix it. Some articles talked about having lots of genes, but having a gene doesn't account for everything. It's all about how they are expressed. This is a bit similar to art and creativity. We can have lots of wonderful tools and supplies, but they can only create magic when we combine them with our own unique self-expression. The way we each see the world, the way we compose sentences, and the way we make marks on paper is a beautifully rare and wonderful thing. No matter how many styles we try, our own style always appears to remind us who we really are. There's no way to escape that wonderful uniqueness that is the essential you, and there's absolutely never a good reason to try. What I've learned on this journey is that our best work comes when we let it happen as it naturally demands. Sure, there's always that rock star with an awesome style I really love, but that's just not me. It's not my style, it's their style. So I learn what I can and then go back and make things my way. And whatever my art lacks in finesse and skill, it can always conquer with a bit of heart. That's my journey, one filled with lots of excited trying as I take moments to occasionally stop and appreciate the allure of shiny things. Apples or cider? One thing I've learned over my sketching journey is that not everyone likes cider, but most can agree that apples are rather nice. So I doodle washed both, and you can take your pick as to which you prefer. I personally like the cloudy, non-alcoholic cider that is made locally, but I don't actually care for the alcoholic variety or regular apple juice. These days, I really do just want the whole apple. But as a kid, I loved apple juice and of course the less boozy version of cider during the autumn season. I insisted that we get some of the cider that I enjoyed in my youth a couple of years ago while Philippe and I were at the grocery. When we got home, we each had a glass, thought it was okay but nothing noteworthy and then just forgot about it entirely. The remainder fermented and we eventually had to just pour it out. But the appearance of those cider jugs at the grocery this time of year still makes me smile. A host of childhood memories comes flooding back to me. Sometimes in life, the memory that something evokes is far better than the actual thing itself. I remember apples in my school sack lunches and the barbaric act of bobbing for them in a barrel as a kid, but that's all of the memories apples bring back to me. Cider, on the other hand, conjures much grander memories. Most notable is that we would have some when we went to a place called Missouri Town, a 30-acre outdoor history museum with actual houses built between 1820 and 1860. Volunteers would dress in the costumes of the time and during the autumn season pass out cups of hot cider from a large kettle. It was like being transported to another time and so the cider was almost magical. They created it in precisely the same fashion as it was done at the time with no preservatives or other modern inventions to get in the way and it was blissfully perfect. I actually went back there with Philippe around this time of year and he was able to try a cup. It was just as wonderful as I remembered but I couldn't tell if he was impressed or not. He spent much of the time marveling at how new everything was since he grew up in Paris and things from the 1800s are simply considered a nice antique, but not actually something one would deem as significant history. 
And so I was able to marvel at both my own memories of youth and memories of my young country, a country that wasn't even in existence at the time many of the buildings Philippe passed by as a child were erected. Perhaps my feelings of being a kid at heart come directly from living in a place that is still quite young as countries go. While other nations are wise great-grandfathers, my own is really nothing more than a rambunctious teenager still trying to figure it all out. Yet it's a strangely exciting country for that very reason. So much happens here, both good and bad, from that rebellious spirit that caused it to form in the first place. And though my heritage extends to Ireland and much farther back than that, my known family tree is mostly planted in the United States. A young history by world standards, to be sure, with log cabin settlements so small that hot cider in a kettle was a significant and wonderful thing to behold. Life was only grand because of the family and friends that gathered round to celebrate it. So in the end, met with all of these memories of the past, I'm not sure I could ever possibly choose between apples and cider. X marks the spot. For a prompt of lantern once, I opted for a quick little doodle of a lantern-lit treasure map. Though finding treasures seems like the most amazing thing, I love the mystery of the pursuit the most. I remember reading books as a kid with characters searching for some elusive treasure, pointing at the map and exclaiming, X marks the spot. In truth, the pursuit was the entire book, as there wouldn't have been much of a story if the treasure were easily found. I've discovered the same thing with my own art journey. Each day is a pursuit to find a sweet spot that feels most comfortable to me. It's the X on my own artistic treasure map. Have I found it? Not quite, but this month's adventure makes me feel like I'm getting closer and closer to understanding just where I should head next. For me, it's always been less about the treasure and more about the story. I'm less concerned about discovering some final end result than I am about just knowing what happens in the next chapter. That moment when I turn the page of my sketchbook and try again. And as long as I keep sketching and turning pages, I know that there will always be a few treasures along the way. I've always described my art journey as an adventure and that's certainly been the case this month. Each little doodle wash is another clue as I go along bits of approaches I'm playing with that I might keep or I could end up discarding entirely. There's no mad dash to a box filled with treasure, but simply a steady approach of moving forward one sketch at a time. As for actual treasure maps, I always dreamed of finding one as a kid. The idea of having a mystery like that to solve amazed me. Of course, living in the suburbs of the Midwest meant I wasn't going to be boarding a ship anytime soon and sailing off to parts unknown. But I was sure there could be some abandoned cabin in the woods that was hiding the secret to some sort of treasure. Thankfully, I was smart enough to never actually venture out alone in search of a creepy cabin in the woods, but the idea of riddles like this were always alluring, not for the idea of winning the physical prize, but simply the idea of successfully solving the mystery. While I've had a blast with my art lately, I'm still in the process of the journey itself. I have much more to learn and try still, and I'm excited to do so in the future. I have learned that I still lack a proper attention span, so anything that requires precision or careful line work is definitely not going to be my thing. 
I actually attempted to make a more careful line drawing earlier in the month and got so bored I just started scribbling instead. But that bit of messiness is equally part of my style. It's much more of a doodle than a proper drawing, and it's really just washes of color, not truly a painting. The fun part is that no matter what technique I attempt, these bits of my own personality cause my style to appear no matter what. And like that kid I used to be, it's fun to try anything and everything. Though I set out to learn which technique or approach in drawing I liked best, I've instead learned what I've always known. Simply doing art is the actual treasure. And no matter what shows up each day on my sketchbook page, I can happily smile, nod, and know that once again, X marks the spot. Thanks so much for listening to the Sketching Stuff podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and new episodes will be added bi-weekly. Visit me at sketchingstuff.com to share your comments and stories.